This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Your word is sharper than any two-edged sword. And it cuts deep into my heart. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's the Tuesday edition. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas, and this is the Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions and questions about anything else going on in your life. All we need you to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or using our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. Remember, if you're driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit one button, call now at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Because it's Tuesday, let's just get right to the questions. Uh, we've had a bunch of questions sent in um, that I, I should have gotten to, but I didn't get to uh, yesterday. So uh, this one is from Carl. He says, how many people were on the earth before the flood, and were they all able to hear Noah's message of repentance. Carl, those are questions that we can't possibly know. Now, there would have been billions of people on the earth. I mean, to live that long in a pristine or near pristine um, um, climate uh, when people were living to be five, six, seven, eight hundred years uh, old and more in some cases, um, there would have been billions and billions of people all over. So, so um, we're talking a, a massive worldwide catastrophic judgment that took place. Now, here's what we know for sure about were they all able to hear Noah's message of repentance. Obviously, they didn't have the Internet. They didn't have uh, uh, audio systems. They, 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 the local people certainly would have heard um, the people that, that Noah would have known and been preaching to 120 years it took him to build that ark. So in that 120 years, I'm positive that God would have, I mean, the, the, the word would have circulated um, for 120 years that, that there was a guy who was building uh, an ark. And in this ark, um, there's, there's going to be a flood. People would have laughed at him. So yeah, people knew. And, and the one thing that we can know for sure, Carl, is that not everyone um, um I mean, no one, rather, was innocent. God judges justly. And so they were judged on the basis of what they did with what they know. That's exactly the same thing when the Great Tribulation comes on the earth. It's judgment. And I think sometimes we we sort of try to make nice with judgment. Um, when God brings the church home to be with him in the rapture, from that moment forward, there's no mercy and there's no grace. It's judgment that is going to be found on the earth. Now, grace is still going to be available for salvation, for sure, because there's going to be a great revival. But in this instance, Carl, remember that the Bible says that every inclination of man's heart was only evil all the time. And, and those adjectives are important. Only evil all the time. So when you understand that, everybody was without excuse. So how they heard, how the word passed, believe me, in 120 years, even if God had to send angels, and it's quite possible that he did, people heard. I say it's possible that he sent angels with the message the first time because we know in the Great Tribulation he's going to do the same thing. He's going to send angels to declare the word. 
uh, the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ, and people are going to reject him. So, Carl, thank you for that question. I hope that helps. Let's go to Universal City and talk with Lucy on line one. Lucy, thank you for calling. You're on the air. Hi, Pastor Ron. How are you this day? <laughs> Good, Lucy. I was hoping it was our Lucy. Thank you. Yes, it's me, Paula's twin sister. <laughs> <laughs> I was. Uh, I've been thinking about covenants in the Bible. When a covenant was made between two people, and perhaps it was broken. Um, was the covenant repaired or was there a new covenant? And I'm thinking along the lines of um, maybe a marriage covenant that was broken somehow. Um, should there be a new covenant uh, to start over, like a do-over again? Uh, I know a lot of times people renew their vows. Yeah. And I wanted your opinion on that. I can do that, Lucy. Thank you very, very much. We love you very much. A um, couple of things. First, um, there's, there's one new covenant, and Jesus introduced it. So we don't have to go through hoops or sign new covenants. Now, having said that, um, as, as you may be aware, Lucy, Paula and I renewed our wedding vows in Christ. Uh, it wasn't something that, that we had to do. It was something I wanted to do. I'd messed up our marriage so badly um, that, that when I got saved, uh, I, I wanted publicly to declare that uh, this marriage was, was whole new territory. So um, um, candidly, um, I didn't have to do it. I wanted to do it. And that's sort of the whole idea of the New Testament, the new covenant under grace. Um, what used to be have-tos now become get-tos and you do something uh, sort of like a free will offering from your heart. You, you do it because you want to make a public declaration and you want to testify to the goodness of God. In our world today, under Christians, under New Covenant, it certainly isn't necessary to do those things, but sometimes it's appropriate. It's sort of like people that want to be baptized again. You know, they were baptized and then they fell away from the Lord for a long period of time. Then the Spirit of God brings them back and they want to get baptized to make another public declaration that things are new. And while it's unnecessary, it's certainly uh, a good thing, a worthwhile thing to do. So these are the kinds of things that we really need to, um, to just be led by the Spirit in terms of doing. Uh, in a direct answer to your question about the covenants in the Old Testament, you know, there were conditional covenants and unconditional covenants. Uh, there were covenants between people, as you suggested, uh, like Jacob and, and Laban. Um, that, that, uh, when they were finally separating, okay, you don't go by here, past here, we won't go past here. And, and certainly because of, of flesh and the human condition, um, I'm sure a lot of those covenants were broken. I'm sure a lot of them were broken. And because they were, um, there would either be reconciliation or in some cases um, there would be war between between the parties of the covenant, uh, the covenant that had been broken. So um, people that want to renew their vows, God bless them. I think it's a great testimony to the goodness of God, the faithfulness of God. But it's not a necessity. It's just something that we do because we want to. Thank you, Lucy. appreciate the call very, very much. Here is a question from our email inbox from Shane. Uh, he says, can people with same-sex attraction who don't act on it because they love the Lord be pastors? I have a friend who is like that but feels called into the pastorate, but he's confused because of his attraction. Um, Shane, I'm going to say a couple of things. First, I'm going to say that that any man who is uh, has same-sex attraction um, would find it very difficult as a pastor. Um, uh, I'm not suggesting that he can't be, but but it would just be a, def a, a very, very difficult burden. The, the enemy uh, won't let go, and, and it's going to be very hard. I also believe, and certainly he would have to stay single, as you imply here. But I even tell our guys, we've planted a whole bunch of churches uh, out of our church chain, and I tell uh, single men when they're young, I said, you know, um, you can't do this without a partner. 
You really can't. I need Paul very, very much. No, it's not a requirement. Uh, in fact, the Apostle Paul was single. We know that. So it's not a requirement. But the single man, and I know a pastor pretty well who is single, um, and he struggles. I have another pastor who is a better, a, a closer friend uh, who was single for a very long time and, and very publicly let everybody know he was praying for a wife. Um, but it's just really hard. I, I don't know how I could do what I do without Paul. I just don't know how I could do it. So it's very, very hard. Now, having said that, um, the man who's called by God to to be a pastor, and, and it is a calling. It's not something that you desire, uh, and that's the only basis. It's a calling by God. And if you are called to be a pastor and you have same-sex attraction, just like if you're called to be a pastor and you're single, then you are committing to living a celibate life um, giving all of your time and energy and attention to the Lord and to the calling, um, uh, it is possible. So I, I wouldn't um, say, no, he couldn't be a pastor. And my yes would be a qualified yes. Um, that would be a, a man who would need an awful lot of, of support, um, pastoral direction from whoever his pastor is. Um, and, and he'd have to be very honest about the struggles that he's having. But yes, it is possible that somebody could be called into the role of a pastor and and still be attracted to the same gender. Uh, hard, yes. Uh, impossible. Uh, nothing is impossible with Christ. So, Shane, that's the best I can do with it. Uh, if that were somebody in my church, um, we would spend so much time together and it would take a very long time for me to be convinced that before I sent him out and gave him my blessing, um, it would take a long time for me to be convinced that he was up to it. That's how difficult it would be. Remember, anybody who is attracted or tempted to any sexual or any sinful situation, for that matter, um, and you got to be walking in the power of the Spirit, and when you are, and when you say no, it pleases God even more. So thanks, Shane. Appreciate the question. Here is my next one. This is from Eli from our email inbox. Pastor Ron, I was looking around the various churches in the area and came across a good amount of other Calvary chapels. I'm assuming they're related to your church. Now, let me just stop there for a minute, Eli, before I go on. Um, not all of the Calvaries in, in the San Antonio area came out of our church. Now, we're all related. We're all affiliated and we have um, uh, communication between all of the pastors. Uh, we we just had a, a breakfast, uh, or lunch rather, uh, in town, uh, and there were nine of us there, and that, that's not all of the, the Calvaries in the greater San Antonio area. There are more than that. And I think we've started uh, or sent out uh, five or six of those those people. And then he says this, I came across the Calvary Chapel on the east side. I was looking at their website and saw something that bothered me. I don't know if I should be bothered, but if I'm wrong, I would like to know why I shouldn't be bothered by it. On their website, there's a Become a Member sign-up sheet. On this, it asked a variety of things to... to um, it says to please to, but I'm not sure what, what that meant. Um, that's, that's awkward. Anyway, most of it is doctrinally sound, but what bothers me is it wants a pledge to the church and pastor and not to the Lord. I don't know what to think, but I'm confused. It is a long list of things that they ask to agree to, including that if one were to leave, they must notify the pastor. Is that how your church does it? And then he gave me a link to the section. Now, I didn't need a link to the section because this is actually one of the churches that came out of my church. Pastor Anton there uh, is a um, is like a son to me. I love him with all of my heart. Um, but one of the things you have to understand, Eli, is that just because somebody's a Calvary Chapel doesn't mean we all walk in lockstep. Um, we're different personalities. We have different styles. Um, and, and on the east side, where uh, Pastor Anton is, uh, he and his wife, Misty, um, they they do have some things. They do some things differently than, than we do here at Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Now, our church, we do not require... Um, we don't have any membership at all. We tell people, look, if you've been here more than twice, you're a member. God bless you. You're a brother. You're a sister. That's all it is. 
Uh, and we don't ask anybody to sign any membership covenant, nor do we exercise any authority over people's lives individually, um, nor do we ask them to pledge money. A lot of churches, um, not necessarily Calvaries, but a lot of churches have membership roles. They ask them to sign these covenants and make pledges. I think it's not a good thing, um, but it's certainly not a wrong thing. I want to emphasize that. It's not a good thing, I, I think. But I also don't think it's a wrong thing. There's no biblical prohibition against it. So uh, I would never have somebody sign something. If somebody wants to leave our church, uh, you know, the door swings both ways. People come and people go. It always bothers us when people leave. But if they leave, uh, I want to assume that the Lord is leading. And uh, I would never ask them to, um, to to sign something that would say, I have to give them permission to leave. Um one of the things that's hard on pastors, and Pastor Anton's church hasn't been there that long, and um, it's it's a, a tough area in town for, for a Calvary Chapel to grow. And, um, you know, people come in, and, you know, the church isn't meeting all their needs because it can't do all the things larger churches can do, and, and so people just leave. And it is heartbreaking when people just stop coming. You know, it's, it's like when people ghost you, it's like, well, what happened? Were they mad? Did, did we say something? Uh, and, and people don't feel that obligation. And I think what he's trying to do there, because I know this man's heart, I think what he's trying to do is say to those people, as a church, we're committed to you, and we want a commitment from you. And that just trying to develop a, sort of a deeper relationship. Personally, I would never do that. Uh, when we were a really small church all those many, many years ago, uh, we never considered doing anything like that. And uh, Lord willing, I never will. But at some point, um, this is a difficult thing. But but I can tell you, Pastor Anton is a um, a young man. Now, young to me. Okay, he's a young man. He's, he's grown an adult. But he's a young man who loves Jesus. And um, um, I sent him out. Uh, he's, I've known him for many, many, many years and he and his family are a treasure to me. We actually have sent people over there to serve with him. Um, and uh, it's it's an area of town that really needs a Bible teaching, chapter by chapter, verse by verse church. So that's what he's doing. So I hope that helps. Let's go to line one and talk with Harold. Thank you, Harold. You're on the air. Hello, Pastor Ron. It's Harold. It's, um, I've been listening to your show off and on after work. Uh, yesterday I caught something that was interesting to me also, uh, a caller you had, I mean, I don't, I don't think it was a caller. I think it was, uh, I think it was an email that was talking about the book of, uh, Jesher. Jesher? No, I, I mean, and I just mentioned that his question, Harold, was about the book of Enoch. And I, I just Enoch, made the statement. Yes, 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 you're right. Yeah. yeah you're right. I, I mentioned but, Jasher cause there are other books mentioned in the scriptures that aren't necessarily inspired by God. Right. And so, yes, you're right on, on that. And, um, but my, my question was, you know, because I've seen those places in Jeshur and the book of Jeshur. And so, you know, I would look up online and cause I wouldn't buy the book or anything, but it's like, mm -hmm. even myself is I'm thinking, okay, is there something else? Why would they mention those books? So what is the purpose? What is in those things? You know, just, just person to person, you know, just talking to someone, having a conversation. Uh, it just makes you wonder, you know, in the book of Jeshua, or like it says in the book of Enoch, you know, and maybe there's several others. I haven't spent any amount of time in any of those other books, really, to be honest mm -hmm. with you. But I just curious is, you know, you know, when you're studying late and you have the lamp on and your mind starts, you know, getting <laughs> carried away. And I think, what is what am I going to find here? You know, and I just wonder why is it mentioned and that long ago? But anyway, I'll let you run. Uh, you know, I I caught that yesterday at the end of the day. And I said, you know, if I get a chance before I before I head home, I'm going to call before I start driving. But that's all I was going to ask you about. I'm just thank, thank you, Harold. Thank you very much. Okay, well, thank I can you very answer, much. Uh, uh, I, I can answer that. You know, um, um, the, the books were quoted. 
um, obviously because the readers then would have been familiar with them. And, and when, when the book is referenced, again, it's not validating the book as, as on a level with Scripture or as inspired by God, but all they're doing is affirming a truth. Um, it, it would be just like saying a proverb or saying, saying um, a saying that's well-known, and Paul does that quite frequently. Um, all he's doing is affirming the truth of that statement. He's not affirming the greater truth of the book. And that's what I said yesterday in response to that question. Um, it's, it's not something that we need to spend any time on. You're not going to get any extra information. Uh, the value of those books, uh, and there are many uh, you know, other gospel accounts uh, that are not inspired by God, certainly not written by the people that they're attributed to. Um, but but in, in the early church, these are books that people would have known. Um, you, you know, pastors today, I heard a, a pastor on this radio station who was being introduced now, um, pastor and now author, and then they gave his name. Um, pastors write books. And the reason that, that pastors write books is because they feel like God has given them a message, and then those books circulate. Now, we don't circulate them the way they were circulated in the ancient world, but we circulate them through publishing houses and things like that. Some of them get a lot of traction, and, and, and many, if not most of them, do not. Uh, and in every one of those books, I'm sure there's something good, but we have to remember those books weren't um, taught by God I, or, or written by God. I, uh, I quote some authors regularly and, uh, when, I'm, when I'm teaching, and um, I, I'm, I'm simply validating the truth of, of the statements that they made or using a statement they made as an illustration. So that's why they would have done it. But there's nothing whatsoever, Harold, uh, in there that's going to add to it. You know, one of the problems in the first century church with these gospel accounts, uh, any man that writes a book is going to make some errors. And, and we know if there are errors, it's not inspired by God. At the same time, those books can be used by God. Uh, the gospel, according to Barnabas, was a, a really well-circulated uh, piece of literature uh, in the early church. And, and it had legs up to three and four centuries. Um, the gospel, according to Mary Magdalene, uh, which was not written by Mary Magdalene at all. Um, at the same time, there's, there's some real problematic issues in that. So all of these books... Um, Paul is simply acknowledging the veracity of the statement that he quotes. He's not giving credibility to the book or putting it on any kind of an equal level with Scripture. Good question, Harold. Thank you very, very much. And I'm getting so old, Harold, I don't know what it's like to be up late with the light on and going through my studies. I have to do everything in the morning because I'm... Uh, that's just the way my mind works. Here is a question from Scott from our email inbox. He said yesterday, now obviously Scott, I'm sorry I got this question late in the program yesterday, so he means he sent this Monday. He said, yesterday in your sermon you said that there were two times Paul used the legal system to advance the gospel. The first one I think was when he appealed to Caesar in Acts 25. What is the other time? It actually is a time before that Scott, in Acts chapter seven, 16, rather, uh, it was after the incident in the Philippian jail, and uh, um, the jailer who, who got saved um, came back with what he thought was good news, and he said, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released, now you can leave, go in peace, and he would have thought that was great, you're no longer a prisoner. But Paul said to the officers, this is Acts sixteen thirty seven. but Paul said, to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we're Roman citizens, and threw us into prison, and now they want to get rid of us quietly? No, let them come themselves and escort us out. Uh, the officers reported this to the magistrates, and we heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. They were alarmed. Now, the reason they were alarmed is because it was illegal to, to uh, scourge, to whip, to put into stocks a Roman citizen. And if the, the, the guards who did the, the beating, um, the officials who ordered the beating, if they were caught doing that to a Roman citizen, then their penalty would be that they themselves would have to take 
the same punishment. And so that's why they were reported. So Paul is simply saying, nope, I'm a Roman citizen, I'm appealing to the law, um, and uh, I'm not going quietly. What I want to do is is make a show of this. Now, Paul wasn't, this wasn't pride. This was simply Paul wanting to demonstrate the power of God over the power, in this case, of the, of the officials that were punishing them under Roman law. So that's all it was about that time. So Acts 16, and then the other one is the one that you mentioned also. Hey, that's the end of the first half of the program. We've got 30 minutes left, 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Got a question for Pastor Ron and the word to stand on for life? You can send it to him via email at PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. That's PastorRonKSLR at gmail.com. back to the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our program you just heard the number so i won't even give it to you again our first question for this half comes from our email inbox from mick who says, I have a friend who works in an environment that requires them to acknowledge transgenders by the pronoun of their choice. In parentheses, he writes, treat the man as a woman or the woman as a man. My friend says, I just keep telling myself to be like Jesus, meaning to ignore it and do as they wish out of love and respect. Jesus would most definitely not just ignore someone's sin and respect their wishes. He would tell them that it was sin lovingly, but he wouldn't turn a blind eye to it. I understand my friend is afraid to lose their job. How should I phrase my advice to them about how Jesus would act in such a situation? You know, Mick, first of all, I, I assume that they're asking you for counsel. Uh, I typically don't give advice unless it's sought. I found people don't listen. They often get offended. So if they are asking you, uh, they're asking you because they know that you're going to tell them the truth and you got to tell them the truth. Now, this is what corporate America is like. This is just the way it's going to be. And we've got to decide as Christians how we're going to respond to it. Are we going to compromise our walk for the sake of a job? I understand jobs are important. But this is an area where we have to really have faith and trust in Jesus. So, Let me first of all say, I will call anybody by the name they want to be called. If a man tells me that his name is Charlene, I'll call him Charlene. But if he wants to be referred to in a feminine pronoun, I'm going to tell him I can't do that because you're not a woman, you're a man. Now, Johnny Cash had a big hit record about a girl named or a boy named Sue. Uh, again, that's not the name, but but we've got to be truthful. So when somebody says, "Well, my preferred pronoun is they or them," or or I want to be referred to as a her, even though I'm biologically a male, uh, I, I'm not going to do that because that would be dishonest, and and that's not being like Jesus to lie. It's certainly not being like Jesus to ignore it. And it's certainly not either loving or respectful to do it. Imagine if you would tell somebody, they say, well, well, I, I know I'm biological male, but I'm trans- transitioning and I want to be referred to in a feminine gender. Um, my answer was, I can't do that because that's dishonest. And I respect you too much to be dishonest. And I'd want people to know that I stand with and for Jesus. This is not being like Jesus. This is compromising our witness in order to keep a job. Where does the compromise ever end if we do that? 
You know, I, I, I believe there's a great um, open door for um, employment discrimination when foretelling the truth, people are fired from their jobs. Now, I'm not advocating suing people. That would be between you and the Lord. But it's never loving, Mick. It's never respectful. Especially when we're lying about it. the reason that we don't want to do it is because we're losing our job. So what I would tell him is simple. You've got to be truthful. And uh, you're right. Jesus would not turn a blind eye to it. He'd put his arms around that, that young man and say, you know what? I, I have a better plan for you than this. So if your friend is afraid of losing their job, I understand that fear. However, at what price compromise? That's really important. Because if you're going to compromise at some point, let's say for a minimum wage job, you wouldn't compromise, but for a $250,000 a year job, you would. Well, you're already a compromiser. The issue is only negotiating on how much it's going to take to get you to compromise. We've got to, especially in these last days, Mick, we've got to take a stand. And it's simply a lie to call somebody who is biologically male a woman or somebody who is biologically female a man. It's simply a lie. Can't they, they tell me their name is um, something that fits, what I'll, I'll call them their name, it doesn't matter. But we've got to be loving, we've got to be truthful, we've got to be direct. And we can't let human resources determine whether or not our witness for Jesus Christ is going to be effective. We can't do it. You know, there are uh, a lot of companies now that are hiring uh, that make you go through sensitivity training um, of one sort or another. Um, we, we now have big corporations mandating that people who are employed there uh, take uh, uh, courses on, on critical race theory, things like that. Just, you know, we got to cover all the bases. We can't offend anybody, so we're going to create an environment that is neither stimulating nor uh, 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 profitable um, because everybody's told how to think. And that's just not the United States of America that, that I grew up in. So this isn't progressive. This is just the opposite, regressive. And unfortunately, we live in this world. Let me say one other thing, because uh, I was listening to um, a fellow pastor commenting on this in, in a similar situation. Um, we're, we're getting to the place, and we're going to get there very soon, where especially large corporations are soon going to be requiring that everybody who works there is vaccinated. And they're going to take away your free choice. You're going to have to make a decision then. Am I going to get vaccinated? Or am I going to, am I going to lose my job? Now, the, the, the federal government cannot force you to. Now, if you're an employee, as your boss, they can. But they can't force non-government employees to do that. But workplaces can. And they can say, and I think they have the right to say, by the way, that, that we want a COVID-free environment as much as possible. So if you work here... You will be vaccinated, and then you've got to make a choice. And I know people that will not get vaccinated because they feel very strongly about it. But some of those people would, as in your case, Mick, um, they would refer to somebody in in a, a, a an incorrect gender term, using incorrect pronouns, uh, because they want to save their job. So I think we got to decide who we are and for whom do we stand. Thank you. Make I appreciate the question. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Kevin. What is the difference between Peter denying Jesus and Judas denying Jesus? A big difference. If you look at the King James, uh, the King James uh, actually used the same word, that, that Judas repented. And we know that Peter repented. But Judas was only repenting over the fact that his plan didn't work out. He didn't, didn't achieve the, the desired effect. Peter, the minute he denied Jesus and heard the rooster crow, he looked up, saw Jesus across the courtyard, and immediately his heart was broken. So 
Peter repented. Peter was restored by Jesus. Judas, remember, Satan entered him. And while Peter was really sorry for overestimating himself, for denying Jesus when he said he wouldn't, Judas, on the other hand, was only sorry because his plan didn't accomplish his goal. And that's how, how, how simple it was. So, Kevin, when you repent, your heart needs to be right, you need to be sincere, and your sins are forgiven. You're purified from all unrighteousness. That's, that's what it took for Peter to be restored um, by, by Jesus himself. So that was the difference. One was sorry for what he did. The other was sorry that what he did didn't work out. Here is a question from Rachel. May I have your opinion on tithing, please? Rachel, this is one of the questions that I get asked all the time on this program. Tithing is not a New Testament concept. Um, tithing is, is uh, Jewish in origin. It, it, the word means a tenth. And Jews were required to give a... Actually, they were required to give what would have been, been uh, equal to about 28% of, of their, their, their uh, income. And when I say income, it was grain and um, livestock and other things not just money. Um, uh, and it was a law. But the law was given to Israel through Moses. And those are the things that, that they needed to do. We have a completely new covenant as New Testament Christians. Now, I realize that lots of churches teach tithing. And I think every time I see a church that teaches tithing, I really believe that the motive behind it is a lack of faith. You cannot open your New Testament. You cannot look at the new covenant that Jesus established in the upper room. This is the cup of the new covenant written in my blood. You can't from there move forward and find any justification for teaching tithing as a New Testament principle. And certainly, it's not a New Testament law. And yet we do it, and I think we do it because if I can convince everybody that they have to give at least 10%, then I can budget, then I can know how much money is coming in, I'll know what to spend, uh, those kind of things. And and I think, Rachel, the church leadership in this nation, and especially those who teach at tithing and pound people on tithing, especially uh, the first of every year and the end of every year, um, I think um, that their, their, their faith is small. I, I don't think they really believe God will provide for them. So they sort of twist the arms of the people in their congregation. And when I say that, there's a lot of pastors I know that listen to this program and they get angry at me. Um, but 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 we're the ones, I think, from the pulpit who have to demonstrate our own faith. God will provide. Here at Calvary Chapel, Rachel, you want my opinion? We have never asked for a dime. We've never let our needs be known. And we've never... Uh, past an offering plate or a box or a bucket or anything else. So um, we just trust that the Lord is going to provide for us. And um, and he has done this for a long time. And our ministry is unique in that everything we do, we do for free. And, and a lot of those free things we do are huge, expensive things. Um, one of the things you, you might notice on the radio program, Rachel, is that we never ask for money. We don't ever sell anything. Not, not on this program, nor on our teaching programs that are on uh, the Christian radio stations in San Antonio and all over the country. Um, we never say for your love offering of. We never try to try to convince you that if we, we're going to stand the air in your area, you need to dig deep and give to us. We don't do that. And uh, unfortunately, almost every other radio program that I've ever heard does that. Uh, and it's getting worse and worse and worse, and there's more and more breaks inside the the, the radio programs uh, to, to separate people from their money. Uh, and I think it is a shameful demonstration of uh, regarding our weak faith. So that's my opinion, Rachel. You asked. Uh, you got it. Anonymous says, I have terrible nightmares, and I'm wondering why God doesn't protect me from them. Anonymous, you are my brother or my sister, 
Uh, I, too, suffer from terrible nightmares. Um, I go to bed at night, and, and one of the last things I ask God is to protect, not praying for me and for Paula, but, but, but protect my, my, our, our heart, protect our minds, uh, protect our nightmares and our dreams. Um, and, and um, you know, the truth of the matter is I have nightmares, horrible dreams, nearly every night. I, I get a break sometimes, thank the Lord, but nearly every night I have these terrible nightmares. Um, you see, you're wondering why God doesn't protect you. I don't think that's his job. I think it's just one of the burdens that you have to bear. Um, I've never considered, I ask God to protect me every night, but I never considered getting up in the morning and saying, well, why didn't you protect me when I asked you to protect me? I, I think he expects us by faith to learn to deal with these things. And the way I shake uh, shake those nightmares off, Anonymous, is uh, when they wake me up, uh, I just remember that that was a nightmare. And, and I'll even say, Lord, I know. That's the enemy. And I want to do it because I just, I'm, it's that I, you know, I think I got to protect myself. And the way we do that is deal with spiritual warfare. We put on the full armor of God and, you know, it's hard to fight in the middle of the night when you're asleep and, and, and unconscious. But nightmares are just part of our self-conscious or subconscious rather. They're, they're part of an enemy who wants to mess with us and he is relentless. So I sympathize with you but it's not God's job to protect you from them. I've had dreams, a few that I knew were of God, um, but I also um, have had nightmares that I knew, I mean, I knew instantly. It was just Satan himself. It was like he was there in the room with me. Um, and God expects us, I think, to deal with those things by faith. Three four zero ninety five eighty five is we're getting close to the end of our program sometime today. Nicholas says, Pastor Ron, lots of people now are prophesying. I believe God is pouring out his spirit because of the numbers of prophets appearing. Am I right? Uh, Nicholas, I think the people that are prophesying, uh, if you look closely, you find out their prophecies are lies. So this isn't God pouring out his spirit at all. Uh, when God pours out his spirit, um, it wouldn't contradict anything that he says in his word. And, and his, the Bible makes it clear, New Testament, Ephesians chapter 2, makes it clear that there are no more New Testament prophets. The apostles and prophets laid a foundation for the New Testament church, past tense, and the church is, present tense, being built on that foundation. So there are no more apostles, and there are no more prophets. The gift of prophecy still exists, but it's none of the nonsense that you see on YouTube and other forms of social media. Uh, anybody, Nicholas, who is calling themselves a prophet uh, is simply a false prophet. You know that from the very beginning. So you don't have to listen to anything they say. Again, it's certainly not God pouring out His Spirit because when God pours out His Spirit, people are going to say that which agrees with the Word of God. Rather than contradict it, they'll agree with the Word of God. And if God's pouring out his spirit and prophets are prophesying, then those prophecies are going to be um, 100% accurate if they come from God. Not, not 90% or 50%, 100% accurate if they come from God. So, Nicholas, don't be fooled by all the hoopla. Don't be fooled um, by the labels that people give themselves this is not God pouring out his spirit. Now, let me say this, Nicholas. I believe that God is going to pour out his spirit one more time before Jesus returns for his church. When God pours out his spirit, you're going to find people repenting. You're not going to find prophets declaring words about elections or words about the vaccine or words about conspiracy theories. When God pours out his spirit, you're going to see repentance. And you're going to see people's lives transformed. And you're going to see the spirit moving um, in, in the hearts of men and women. That's what happens when the spirit of God is poured out. 
So it's not what you're seeing right now with these who are falsely claiming to be prophets. Excuse me, that was the sneeze break. Mountain Cedar's still here. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here's a question from Jeremy. He says, what do you mean when you say that Christians are identified by how they live? Um, Jeremy, normally, you know, we, we, we look at somebody's lifestyle and we listen to the thing that they say, I'm a Christian. Um, and then, then we look at their lives and see that they're not living a life that's at all consistent with, with the, the, the Word of God. They're not consistent with the fruits of the Spirit. And so I get asked the question all the time, well, well, do people lose their salvation? What happens when they fall away from God? And the truth is, Jeremy, there are a lot of people who say they're Christians who just aren't. Maybe as many as half of the people that are sitting in churches every week are not born-again Christians at all. They're good people. They identify as Christian. But they don't serve God at all. They don't serve Him with their time, their talent, their treasure. Uh, their, their speech doesn't change. You look at them and they're more like people who don't know Christ than, than people who do. So when I see a list in, um, for example, Galatians chapter 5, the fruits of the Spirit, those are the, the lifestyles, the behaviors, the attitudes that uh, enable us to really say to somebody, yeah, you are a Christian. Now, let me tell you something. One thing I can tell you, Jeremy, if you're filled with the Spirit, love. You know, the people that like to get online and argue with people and shout them down and capital letters and things like that. There's no love. That's just noise. Doesn't mean they're not a believer, but their behavior identifies them as being an unbeliever. Um, Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. That's how you identify who's really saved. And if somebody tells me they're a Christian, but they're out of control, or they're impatient, or they're angry all the time, um, then when I get a chance to talk to them, I, I ask them, well, what makes you think you're a Christian? And they'll usually answer by saying, well, I was baptized, or I go to this church, or I was raised in a Christian home. All those things, but none of that identifies them as a Christian. The identity of a Christian are the fruits of the Spirit. And if you're really a believer, then everybody ought to be able to see. So that's what I mean when I say that Christians are identified by how they live. And I will add this, Jeremy, rather than who they say they are. I love talking to people, you know, when we're out, whether it's at the gym or at a restaurant or someplace. Um, we, we tell people who we are a lot, and, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, great, where do you go to church? Well, I don't go. Oh, well, you're a Christian, why don't you go to church? Or I'll hear them using foul language. Well, you said you were a Christian. Where's that language come from? I'll see people be unkind. Let me ask you, Jeremy, how can a Christian be uh, a Christian be unkind? Those are the things that we really need to focus on, and we can help people. And by the way, you get a lot of opportunities to witness to people when you do that. Last question for today. This one comes from Larry. He said, Pastor Ron, why would God create people he knows will not believe in him? Larry, um, God doesn't create people. He created two people, Adam and Eve. Everybody else was created by a process that God created. Um, when a man and a woman have sex, babies result. And, and your question seems to suggest that God should abort babies. That if he knows they're not going to believe in him. Remember, it's a privilege, Larry, to live in this world. There's a lot of good things. Not only that, but there's a lot of great contributions unbelievers make to the world that we live in. Are we to expect that God is just going to 
not allow them to be born just because he knows they're not going to believe in him? No, God gives everybody the opportunity to believe. So remember, when we say, well, we're all God's creation. No, we're not. We are created through the process of multiplying, being fruitful and multiplying. And God gave us the process for sure. But man has for thousands and thousands of years been corrupting the processes of God. So don't blame God. He gives everybody a chance. Nobody has to go to hell. But if they choose to go to hell, God honors the choice they make in life. He gives them, I'll just throw on an average, 70 years to make a choice. Somebody dies at 68 or somebody dies at 72. You know, they, they, they had all those years to make a choice. And God gives them that opportunity. And then if they die separated from him, um, he, he'll basically say to them, look, you chose to live your life um, apart from me of your own free will. So I'm going to honor the choice you made in life. I'm going to honor that in eternity. And that's when they're going to go spend eternity separated from God. We call that, of course, hell. So Larry, God didn't make me. My mom and dad did. Hey, thanks for tuning in today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Grateful that you tuned in by the will of God. I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio.